All right. I ask for prayer right now that I would have the energy. I don't feel like I do, and I know I don't sound quite right. Um, I feel like I've been sick for the whole month of February, and so um, it's just been a struggle to be healthy. I know a number of us are dealing with different things. Um, But today we have a psalm that is really very familiar to a lot of us. Uh, there's, there's a lot of us here. I could start to read this psalm and you could start to quote the rest of it. Um, this is Psalm 100, if you're not aware. If you turn with me in your Bibles there to Psalm 100. Um, and this psalm deserves some energy. Uh, it's, it's what it was meant to be. I've titled the message, A Gushing Tribute. Um, it's a very short psalm. And... Uh, yet it packs quite a bit. Um, I think it probably became somewhat famous because it, of its number, 100. Um, but it, it really does deserve some energy this morning. So I'm going to pray as we find our way there. And uh, then I'm going to read the text. Father, this morning we thank you for your ability to communicate your, your heart's desire to us through time and space, uh, for you to um, especially reveal yourself through your self-expression of your Son and to do so uh, in a uh, magnificent way through your Word to proclaim for us what it is that, that you deeply desire. And, and Lord, the psalmist this morning is <clears throat> giving us a glimpse of, of what it means to to gush over having been touched by you. And so, Lord, we pray that our hearts would overflow as well as we try to communicate how faithful and good and extraordinary that you are, Lord. We pray this um, in the name of your Son, our extraordinary King. Amen. I wonder if... um, and before I get to the text here, I wonder how many of us, for a frame of reference, have ever seen the uh, an old Coke commercial from the, let's say, late 70s. Um, it's a Coke commercial involving a Pittsburgh Steelers player by the name of Mean Joe Green. Do you know the commercial that I'm talking about? So the, the, the commercial essentially has this kid in the tunnel outside the football stadium and Joe Green, who was a famous uh, Pittsburgh Steelers defensive lineman, and as you can tell by the, by the nickname that he got, Mean Joe Green, he was a fearsome guy on what was known as the, the Steel Curtain uh, of the, this sort of nickname that the whole defense got for the Pittsburgh Steelers. And it was back during the time when um, Terry Bradshaw was leading the, uh, the Steelers to uh, numerous championships. I think they got like four Super Bowls in, in the late 70s. And uh, Joe Green in the commercial is walking out and sort of hobbling. He's semi-injured as he comes down the, down the tunnel. And the kid says something to him. And, um, and the kid has a Coke. 
and uh, essentially Joe asks him if he can have the Coke. And the kid gives him the Coke. And then in return, Joe gives him his jersey. And the kid is like, thanks, Joe. I mean, he's so elated that this would happen. That somebody so famous would sort of stoop down to his level and would interact with him. Because Joe was famous at the time. It reminds me of a little more modern example where um, uh, Robert Downey Jr., the actor that plays um, Sherlock Holmes and um, Tony Stark in the, in the Marvel uh, Avenger movies, decided to show up at a children's hospital. And he, if you know who he is, he plays in the Marvel movies Iron Man which is this guy that has a mechanical suit and can do all these amazing things. And, and never mind that if, if Tony Stark was smart enough just to make Iron Man suits for all the Avengers, the movies all would have been a lot shorter and there wouldn't have been as many of them. Wouldn't have been a need to it, but he never thought of doing that. But anyway, he, he's Iron Man. And so he shows up to the children's hospital with his mechanical arms to present a, a boy with a brand new prosthetic arm that he needed. And it's a, it's a tearful, touching event where he is in full character, comes in, and Iron Man presents a boy with a brand new mechanical arm that resembles Iron Man just a little bit, but they can take it off and to where it looks like a normal prosthesis. And uh, the, the boy was absolutely elated that somebody so famous, so above him, so, so admired, would reach down to his level. That is the context of our psalm this morning. And that is the reason why the psalm is such a tribute as it's meant to be. Now this psalm this morning, at Leah's uh, reading of, of Psalm 97 was very appropriate because um, this is the last psalm in a number of psalms known as the Jerusalem Hallels, or the Jerusalem Praise Psalms. And they start in, in uh, Psalm 93, and they go all the way to 100. And there was a time about a year and a half ago where I was preaching through them. And I got to 99, and I stopped. I don't know why, but if we finally get to finish the Hallels here, this is the last one, and this one sort of puts an exclamation point on all of them. Um, I don't know if you believe the scripture the same way that I do, but I am one of these people that um, I have a very, very high view of God's word in the doctrine of inspiration. Me meaning that I believe that God is extraordinarily detailed in the preservation of his word. And, and first, 2 Timothy 3.16 says that, that all scripture is God-breathed. This is his essence that we're getting to hear. It's inspired by him. But I take it even beyond um, uh, the actual words on the page. Uh, when I think uh, practically about the history and transmission of God's word, all of the hands and the copyists and the editors and the redactors and all the people that this word has gone through to get to where you are, I think God has to be equally um, intricately superintending over it all. 
That it, it's, it, it's beautiful in how he preserves his word. Like his inspiration almost extends to all the hands of men and women that have preserved this word for centuries. And so I believe that in, in some senses, God is inspiring them to keep it as it is meant to be a proclamation of himself. And that's why I, I take that, that the editor's choice to arrange the Psalms in this way, to put 100 in the spot of 100, is equally part of his inspiration as much as anything else. Just to give you an example of what I'm talking about here, and I, I don't think that the order and arrangement, uh, that there's only one that's perfect. But if you were to look at a Hebrew Bible, you would find that um, the order of the Old Testament books is different than our English Old Testament. And the book of Ruth, that little four-chapter book, is actually positioned right after the book of Proverbs. Not because it is considered wisdom literature. It's not like the Proverbs. Thematically, it's not the same. But here's why it is. It's because when you read Proverbs 31, that famous chapter, probably the most famous chapter of all the Psalms, and you read a description of what a virtuous woman is, the Hebrew Bible is communicating to you that you want to see one in real life, look at Ruth. That's why it comes where it does. And I believe that God superintends and inspires people to see his word in that way. Where we have Psalm 100 is meant to be an exclamation point on what it means to proclaim that God, that Yahweh is king. That he's the king that sits on the throne. And this is our text this morning Psalm 100, a psalm for giving grateful praise. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God, and it is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. And that's where it ends. It's a bit abrupt. It feels as if there was more to come. But it's only five verses for us this morning. Yahweh is exclusive God is exclusive, yet he has inclusively invited all the earth to come and intimately know him through worship. <coughs> These five verses start out with what we would see as a, um, a threefold invitation. You see it there in the text. The first one is to shout and then to worship and then to come. But it's not just for the people who reside in Zion. It's not just for the people who know him in relationship. This is an invitation that goes out to everyone, which is different than most of the other Hallel Psalms. Most of them have focused on the people of God getting close to the God that they love. But this one, albeit brief, is an open invitation to the entire earth. A shout all the earth is commanded to give a joyful shout of praise because, well, he deserves it. 
That's really, that's unique among psalms, which typically would call the covenant community to praise the Lord. But, but here the entire earth is commanded to praise the covenant God, which I think implies that they have an opportunity to know him too. That's something that might draw others in. The entire earth is commanded to praise the covenant God that, 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 and it implies that there's some sort of shout of joyful praise that draws people to him. Then it says worship. Literally in the Hebrew it means serve, but uh, it has the idea of both worship and obedience and service there. there. There's not a word in Hebrew for our English word worship. And so serve sort of the closest thing that we can come to. Um, but it means that lines between worship and service are really meant to be blurred when you think about it. Um, every act of worship of Yahweh is service to him. And every act of service, not just the services that happen officially, but every time that you do something in his name, that whether it be mundane or, or uplifted, all of it is meant to be worship. It's all an act. And so in this, we see um, a clear connection between the way our, our praise happens in a place like this and then the way that we live when we're not in a place like this. All of it is meant to be in alignment. The question is, do we see it that way? Lastly, the invitation is to come. Come before him with sort of an exclusivity for him. I come before him in a way that's different than I would come before anyone else. Um, no other gods before him, no graven images, yet those who bear his image are welcome before him because they represent him. But the word here, come, also implies a bit of a relational sense. Um, it, it, it's sort of, I know the person that I'm coming before. I, I know a bit of his presence. His, I'm, I have an awareness of him um, it's emphasizing coming before him. Do I recognize that he is near me right now? Remember, it's a command given to all the earth. Do I recognize and emphasize to others that he is surely accessible? After this threefold invitation comes a, a threefold affirmation. And really, the, the affirmation is just to know three things. The first of which is to know or to, or to rest in the knowledge that he is alone God. His, his relationship is accessible, yes, and you can enter into it through a covenant. But do you know that while he is exclusive, he is inclusive in offering his relationship? What I mean by that is that God is the only person that you can have a relationship with in the divine. There's no other relationship with the divine like him. But he is inclusive in that it's not just for special people to have that relationship. The invitation goes out to everybody. He wants to be in relationship with all people, all his creations. He is not exclusive in who he wants to open himself up to. The relationship is the foundational reason for praise. Do, and the, I have to ask myself, do I know that he is exclusive and that praise for him should be exclusive? The second thing is to know that 
that those who are part of the covenant relationship with him, they know that, that they belong to him, that they are made for him. And it is his creative, or rather recreative work that has made me able to have relationship with him. This realization that we belong to him is surely incredible. I, I, I think it, when I think about it and contemplate it enough, it makes me feel very small. That the God of the universe desires to have relationship with me. That he has stooped down to my level. That he wants for me to intimately know him and for me to... I'm already known intimately by him because he has all knowledge, but, but for me to have a greater understanding of him, that he would sort of, the way he did in the transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, just sort of, let me give you a peek of, of how amazing I am in just a bit of my glory sort of, sort of seeping out for you to give some sort of inkling and understanding of how grand that I am. But the realization of that relationship is pointing towards the fact that we are loved. It fulfills a huge core part of identity to know that whether or not I find myself belonging in any sense in any part of this world, because relationships come and go, work engagements come and go, opportunities come and go, but to know that I belong to him regardless of anything else, to know that that that... if there's no other place on this planet where I feel like I belong, but to know that right there beside him, I belong there, that's a huge core to who I am that's being filled by him. And he is the only one that can do it. Do I praise him for this foundational truth? And notice, though, in, in verse 3, it, it's not a, just a recent development but that is how we were made in the beginning. This implies that it was always part of his plan. Having a relationship with him was never plan B. It was never, as some people uh, falsely have, have said, that, well, in the Old Testament, people tried to live out a law, and then obviously they couldn't do it. So then getting saved and, and coming into relationship with him was plan B. No, no, no. That was always plan A. Adam had opportunity to be in relationship with him in the garden. Eve had opportunity to be in relationship in the garden. Yet they chose to be independent instead of dependent upon him. It's not a recent development that he would want us to find our belonging in him. It's always been that way. And lastly, we're to know that we're sheep. For the kids uh, on uh, the children's Sundays who are going through fish stories, the only possible more common animal in the Bible than fish, which there are lots of fish, trust me, I have more than enough stories about fish to talk about with the kids, but the only more popular animal is sheep. Sheep are all over the place. Here's another reference that we are the sheep of his pasture. You keep in mind that the Psalms describing God as king 
To say that we are his sheep is to say that he is our shepherd, which means that he's not just a shepherd, he's a shepherd king. What would it be like to be under the dominion of one who is both shepherd and king? A shepherd is anything but a tyrant. A shepherd is someone that goes through great length. Shepherds were never well respected in, in the cultures surrounding the Bible. They never were. Yes, David was a shepherd. And yes, David, his, the star of David becomes the symbol for all of Judaism because he was the greatest king that they ever have. In, in many senses, he's almost the greatest Jew that they ever had, um, maybe except for Abraham. Like, yes, he's well respected, but not because he was a shepherd. It was never because of that. It was maybe because he was a warrior king. That's why he was highly respected. The fact that God chose to proclaim himself when he came to be one of us to shepherds out in the middle of the field was one of those head scratchers. Like, why are we talking to them? No one would like to be called a shepherd king and still be as well-respected as every other culture around them would, uh, would give credence to. But we are sheep of a shepherd king. Uh, that's a person that cares. I don't know if I'm going to have the opportunity to do it, but I was thinking of during this season preaching on Psalm 23, which is a, a more famous reference to sheep in the Psalms than even this one. Um, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Um, I don't know whether I'm going to have the window to do it. Um, but when you think about what shepherds go through, sheep are maddening creatures. They're dumb. They might be the dumbest animals out there. And when you think, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. What it takes for a shepherd to get a sheep to feel the things that are being communicated in that psalm, it's astounding. What they have to go through to get those sheep to a place that they would be okay with the other sheep, that they would sit down beside quiet waters, that they would feel at ease. It's astounding just, just, just to get these dumb animals to sit and be patient. They don't know how to do it on their own. And so shepherds have to live with them and stink like them and um, sort of be fully and completely present with them at all times just so they might feel some semblance of peace. Now this king, this royalty, is now saying that he wants to spend time with his vessels. It's surely an amazing truth to know that the king of the cosmos who holds all things together by his might would use the same care to invest in me. Which begs the question, do I praise him with that in mind? The most staggering part of this knowledge is to remember that this command goes out to all the earth. And so we read that Israel is the sheep of his divine pasture, but now he's saying, just like Jesus did in Luke 19, I've now come to seek and to save that which was lost. 
I want everyone to be my sheep. In verse 4, there's another threefold invitation. Enter, give, and praise. The first, enter, is to come into his sanctuary with thanksgiving and to give thanks as you come. So it's, it's a formal invitation for all the nations to come here and they're encouraged in, to come into his sacred space, which was supposed to be exclusive, but he's offering it to everyone. Then they're to give thanks, to confess and declare that he has come near and deliver um, He's come near to deliver them, to be present with them, to bless them. It's sort of a, um, an encouragement to give thanks because he's present with you. He's not inaccessible and out there, but he's very near. Lastly, to just generally give praise is to say that he's worthy of glory because he's involved in the world and his reputation is one of majesty. Yet he stoops down. To praise his name is to praise his reputation or his very being. That's, that we're talking about an infinite God that has made himself accessible to the finite and included all in that ability to know him. Uh, at least, if I think about it enough, that should encourage me to have a degree of warmth towards him that I might feel that someone truly great has taken the time to adore me. Lastly, there's another threefold invitation, or sorry, affirmation in verse 5 of three things. An affirmation of his goodness, of his love, and his faithfulness. For the Lord is good, and his love endures forever, and his faithfulness continues through all generations. It's very similar to how Psalm 23 ends. The first one, goodness, is the first reason for praise. It's always the first reason for praise. It's the first way we get introduced to him, that he is good. It's how the Bible opens that he is good. And God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and God said, and things were created, and then what did he say as a stamp of approval on what he does? It is good, which gives us a key into knowing that the one who makes it all is good. That's why he can say that it's good. It's the most basic character claim that you could make about a god in ancient world. The gods were seldom thought of as good, though. In any belief system, they were thought of as cruel or fickle. Yet people felt beholden to them. They didn't realize that their gods were more a reflection of their own hearts rather than true benefactors or sustainers as Yahweh is. What we're saying about him that he is good is saying that he is attractive. It's a radical way of talking about a God. Do I portray my relationship with him as radical and yet attractive? Secondly, he is a loving God. His absolute loyalty to us is because of his great love. And the Hebrew word in our English that we find most commonly way that, that, that Yahweh wanted to be known 
is the word hesed. Hesed is his loyal love. I forget whether it's Psalm 36 or 136 where it has the refrain that goes over and over again, his steadfast love endures forever. As it repeats some like 40 different times in the psalm, I forget, it, you can look it up. It's either 136 or 36. But that's a re repetition some 40 times of his hesed, his steadfast love. That's the way above all else that he wants to be known. This love is part of his essence. That's why it says in 1 John 4 that God is love. Love in action. And when he acts graciously to me, it's not because he has just an affectionate whim for me. It's because it is his nature. And I can trust his love to be loyal to me because whims come and go but this love endures forever. Lastly, it's his faithfulness here. The third reason is that he is totally faithful to an ongoing experience of life with him. The Old Testament de demonstrates again and again that Yahweh is faithful to his covenant promises. No matter what Israel did, the covenant was unconditional. And thus, when they were faithless, he was still faithful. But this faithfulness is extended now not just to them, but to the nations with an unshakable consistency for all. And this was not just stated by his actions, but also by how he wanted to be known. He said, I am gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And the question for me is, do I recognize him that he is worthy of praise, not just because he has been faithful, but because he will be faithful no matter what comes. His loyal love is his very being. This intersects with the gospel, obviously, in the revelation of who God is. I don't know how to be in relationship with God unless I know the type of God that I could be in relationship with. I think about this when we teach our kids about the gospel. I, I want to proclaim him to them as attractive as he actually is. That it's truly appealing to see that God is not just this big, scary, you know, white-haired, bushy-bearded guy in the sky that's judge of all the earth, as some people want to portray him. But yet it's his kindness and his goodness and his faithfulness and his love, essentially, that he has revealed himself there. And that makes him look exceptionally attractive and yet amazingly accessible. Jesus is the exact imprint of this God. The exact representation, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his being. And God and humanity are joined forever in the person of Jesus as a display of glory. See, Jesus reflects both God's exclusivity when he says things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That's a, one of his exclusive statements about him being the way. But it's because God only deserves to be approached in one way, and that's through his Son. But at the same time, 
that invitation is for all. It's an inclusive invitation. And find his loyal love. Jesus went even beyond invitation, seeking those who were lost. And he did all of this, including going to the cross, to make the Father look exceptionally good and loving and loyal. And he commands his disciples to do the same in their worship lifestyle. He, that we were, were called to be in relationship with him to make him look attractive and through the power and grace that he makes available that we would show what he is actually like. And this is why people from all manner of circumstances and cultures will worship him for all time. But I have to remember that this psalm is pointing towards that invitation, that command of an invitation to go out towards all the earth and to remember that, it, that in a manner that, that invitation affirms his very being as our loving and loyal king. There's none like him. Jesus invites us to an unrestrained worship of him, an, an exclusive worship of him, albeit, but one that is open to affirm his loyal love to all people. Just a few points of application this morning before I close. I think the way that the psalmist invites us in is that this shout for joy is an encouragement to people like me who usually has a, a very restrained manner of worship that worship was meant to be unrestrained. You know, I've got a, got a daddy-daughter dance coming up uh, next month. And I think about how I dance with my girls, and it's usually like this. Because I have no moves. It's just, it's real simple. There's nothing to it. And I'm sure there's going to be a point where they're like, come on, Dad, let's move. Let's do something. And I'm going to be like, I don't, I don't know what to do, kid. Um, the way that I worship is similar to the way that I dance. It's very conventional. It's very restrained. Yet this is clearly encouraging all people to engage with him in ways that you didn't even think were cool to engage with him in. Like, you, you can worship him in so much more. And I think that this is encouraging us to let loose. And yeah, it's probably going to make somebody else feel uncomfortable, but within reason, who are you worshiping? Who is it for? It's not for anyone else around you, particularly. At least not first. It's for him. Our worship at least needs to be let loose a bit. And then, I think, at, at bare minimum, the psalm in the first couple verses is pointing towards an outward focus of the worship. See, so often my worship is like a thanksgiving to God for what he does for me. Maybe that's where it starts, but it must not end there. 
the thanks must go out for what is far beyond my sphere of influence, which means I have to be paying attention. I have to be recognizing what to give thanks for in the lives of other people around me and also what he's doing outside these walls. It's an unrestrained outward focus of worship that the psalm's giving us. Secondly, there's an affirmation of his, his inclusive call. Worship always is connected to mission. John Piper uh, famously said in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, that the reason why missions exist is because worship does not. And wherever worship already exists, the cause for mission has already been imprinted. And now there's a reason to go elsewhere. Did you catch that? That there's always a relationship between worship and mission. And wherever the mission is, it's to make worship happen here. Which puts a little different spin on what it means to be on mission. That it doesn't mean that it's just where you go overseas or, or where you go into another cultural context. But sometimes it's just in a space where worship does not already exist. There's an inclusive call for all to belong to him. Do I still communicate that inclusive call? Third, there's an invitation to humbly reflect upon how adoring he is in stooping to my level. I think that all by itself is the main point of the psalm for me to know that he is so great, yet he has been so good to feign and stoop to my level. And lastly, he is, my worship is meant to affirm that his loving character has always been about investing in us. Um, why is he so faithful and so loyal? Because he has a plan for us. And I can feel confident that all things can work together for good because he loves us. And he's called us according to his purpose. And he's got us in this trajectory of making us into the image perfectly of his son. Conforming us to his image. That's his investment. And he deserves praise as we affirm that as truth. Let's pray. Father, this morning I'm thankful for the communication of your goodness and your love and your faithfulness to us. And that it extends not just to this generation, but to other generations, Lord, that go far beyond us because you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, Lord, we want to proclaim that you are an exclusive God that is given an inclusive invitation. And you want all of us to enjoy you forever. We thank you for that simple truth in Jesus' name.